If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike, preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Could Ireland's tiny, underfunded and ill-equipped defence forces deal with the challenges a united Ireland could bring? The current state of defence force is not capable of looking after this jurisdiction, the 26 counties at the moment. It would certainly not be able to deal with an additional six counties on top of that. Despite the state that our world is in, the Republic's military is shrinking. But how is a country the size of Ireland ever going to have a sufficient military by itself to defend itself from attack by the US, by Britain, by Russia, by China? It's, it's not possible. Some believe the state must develop a military capacity. Others see that as a potential threat to Ireland's neutrality. I'm all for neutrality. Um, I don't want us to be giving that up or sacrificing that in any way, shape or form. The Irish Air Corps can't tell if hostile aircraft are in its airspace. And even if it could, it would be helpless to do anything about it. So there's a secret deal with the UK to allow the RAF to come to Ireland's aid. How does that sit with the principle of Irish self-determination? We are still in the foothills of these debates about Irish unity. We haven't really got serious about it. Even those who say that this is central to their politics, they're actually just dabbling their toe in the water. In the final part of our three-part series, the Belfast Telegraph's Northern Ireland editor, Sam McBride, joins me to discuss whether Ireland's tiny military forces are a sign that the Irish government isn't serious about a united Ireland. Sam, one of the things that you have brought up is in the event of a united Ireland, and there's nothing inevitable about that, there's no, but people continue to talk about it, and people continue to talk about a referendum. 
the state of the Irish Defence Forces and the capabilities of the Irish Defence Forces, many people say that that would come into play. Well, it would be hugely significant. Anybody who thinks about this for five minutes realises that the worst thing that could happen, if you're, if you're thinking about the, the, the darkest scenario for how Irish unity could come about, it's where there is a murderous loyalist backlash, where either there is some sort of very concerted campaign to try to stop what is happening in a, in a, in a quasi-military sense, a bit more like 1912, where guns were brought into Larn, etc., by the old UVF, or something like the more modern UVF, where it is simply about pure sectarian slaughter. It's about finding random Catholics, shooting them in the head. Either of those is clearly something that any rational person, any moral person wants to avoid um, if if there is to be Irish unity. And yet, one, one of the things that struck me about this was that when I wrote about this, the, the, the biggest backlash didn't come from loyalists or unionists saying, how dare you suggest that we might be violent? Um, obviously, most unionists, most loyalists probably wouldn't be violent. There's no reason to believe that. But the real backlash came from from, from Irish Republicans, from, from some nationalists who said, this is so irresponsible. How dare you suggest that that, that there would be loyalist um, violence in the event of, of, a, of, of Irish unity? Um, that's something which you're almost encouraging. You're almost salivating over this. And I, I was quite taken aback by that because I think what it shows is that we are still in the foothills of these debates about Irish unity. We haven't really got serious about it. Even those who say that this is central to their politics, they're actually just dabbling their toe in the water. And so what, what you have at present is that... If that was to happen, let's say in 10 years' time, there might be a vote for Irish unity. Um, if, if that was to happen, what would the Irish Defence Forces do? Well, at present, I think they'd be hopelessly inadequate to deal with um, even a mild insurrection in Northern Ireland. First of all, they couldn't secure the coastline. That's a massively significant thing. Guns came into this island in 1912 through the coast. Um, they came into Lorne, they came into Donegal um, That That is a very obvious route for people trying to get weaponry in here. The IRA did that. During the, during the more recent troubles. Um, they also can't secure the skies. Now, there's no suggestion, obviously, that loyalists are going to be flying fighter jets in, in any sort of insurrection if there's, if there's Irish unity. But if they did manage to get somebody to bring in weapons through a small plane or something like that, there's no way for Ireland to know that that's happening. They've got no jets to go up to intercept it if there was something of that nature. So this, this might seem quite far-fetched when you think of Ireland as a tiny, militarily neutral country. But if you think even a little bit into the future, if you have any sense that Irish unity is even possible, remotely credible, this becomes very significant. We'll, we'll speak about other voices in a second, but for you and your analysis, this is what you've described as a crude barometer of how seriously the Republic takes any possibility of Irish unity. Well, I think that if you're looking at a at a serious prospect of a united Ireland in 10 years, in 20 years, even in 30 years, Ireland would be doing certain things. They would be putting away a lot of money to prepare for that because it's going to be very expensive if it happens. They would be building up the Irish Defence Forces in this strategic way, looking at it seriously. They would be looking at, 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 at cross-border infrastructure in a much more serious way than is the case at present. There's lots of things that would be happening that simply aren't happening. People are starting to talk about this. They are starting to discuss it. And that, if you're a nationalist, is progress because it shows that it is more serious now than it was five years ago. 
if you go back five, 10 years, almost nobody was talking about this. Maybe a handful of academics, maybe a very small number of people who are very interested in some of these areas, some of these very discrete areas. But now this is becoming a much more serious proposition. People are starting to think, if there's any chance this happens, even if it's still unlikely, what would we do? How would it happen? What would we need to think about now? And this is one of the most significant areas, I think, because whatever anybody's view of Irish unity, if it comes about, if there is a vote, let's say there's a vote 55-45 in favour of Irish unity, that's a democratic decision. That is something which all of unionism has said, or almost all of unionism has said they would accept, as long as there was no argument that this was in any way rigged, or there's anything unfair about it. Um, And so therefore, it is in everybody's interest that that happens peacefully and that there is no um, sectarian slaughter of whatever sort. And of course, if sectarian slaughter started on one side, it would very quickly come back on the other side. It would very quickly, I think, spiral in the way that it has throughout all of Irish history. It takes a very small spark to to, to um, very quickly ignite a big, big forest fire. Now, this analysis, this assessment that you're presenting and this possibility of... Uh, loyalist trouble in the event of United Ireland and the necessity to deal with that uh, with security infrastructure. I mean, you're not alone in that in, in that assessment at all. No, I mean, this This is something that as other people start to think more seriously about the, about the possibility of a United Ireland, they start to look at all these areas. One of the things is that when, when you start to look at how difficult it would be, how complicated it would be, how it might actually come about, you realise it would be incredibly difficult. This is not a simple thing about if only nationalism in Northern Ireland could get people to 50% plus one, which itself is obviously a very difficult thing to do, it would be straightforward. It would be nothing like straightforward. That's not to say it can't happen. That's not to say that any of this is in any way impossible. But if we're serious about this, if anybody is serious about it, they need to accept that this is a a huge undertaking and potentially a deadly undertaking if it goes badly wrong. So it's not something to be trifled with. One one of the people who's looked at this in most depth, perhaps the most depth, is Professor Brendan O'Leary. And um, Brendan O'Leary is the person who has written a recent book published last year about how Irish unity might come about. He's written all manner of papers, of books, of academic articles. He, he he gave a recent talk in Cork that I was present at looking at these issues. And one of the many areas that he looks at is defence. And he says essentially that the Irish Defence Forces are completely incapable of dealing with a mild insurrection even if that was to happen in Northern Ireland. And some people don't want to even acknowledge the possibility of violence. It's too dark to think about or it's too difficult and it might undermine the, the Irish unity campaign in Northern Ireland, if you're, a, if you're a moderate nationalist, if you're a moderate unionist who might be persuaded of Irish unity, or more likely a centrist voter who might be persuaded of Irish unity, if you think there's any possibility that it might be violent, well, that's a big reason to maybe think twice about whether you're going to support it, particularly if you think you might be the person that might be in the firing line, quite literally, if this goes badly wrong. But what Professor O'Leary says is that it is an entirely legitimate fear to think about this. It is not something that's far-fetched. History is very clear as to this being a serious possibility, even if it's not in any way inevitable. And he says that that fear must be confronted. He said blackmail must be expected. It should not be tolerated. So he's not in any way for anybody who misunderstands his words, saying that somehow because somebody threatens violence, we can't have a united Ireland. That would be preposterous if that was the will of the people. 
But it is also preposterous to say that because somebody has a propensity to violence and has been quite open about saying they will be violent in those circumstances, that you ignore that, that you don't take them at, at, at their word and you don't prepare seriously for that. And, and, you know, it's interesting because I've been working on this story for a couple of weeks now, looking around the stories around the Irish Defence Forces. And yes, there is an injection of, of investment, uh, if you could put it that way, by the current Irish government into the Defence Forces. So they are going to spend some more money on it. I mean, we know there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a huge crisis in terms of recruitment, retention of, of, of soldiers and sailors, and there's a complete lack of, of modern equipment. But, but Sam... There's, there's, there seems, there's no apart from the odd independent. There seems to be no one saying here we need to spend more money in defence, and that includes Sinn Féin, whose raison d'être is a united Ireland. So one, one, one of the extraordinary things about this, when you look at it, particularly in the south, is that the people who are calling almost to a person, the people who are calling for more investment in the Irish Defence Forces are the people who are least enthusiastic about Irish unity. They want it for other reasons. They might want to join NATO. They might think that that, that as, as more right of centre people, that it's more important to have a strong military to defend what Ireland has now, which is more wealth. It's not a poor country anymore. It's a very wealthy country. And if you're a wealthy country, people might come, come and want to get some of that. They might want to. There are all sorts of modern ways that Ireland is now threatened. There are pipelines, there are undersea cables, there have been Russian ships loitering around some of these things. That's all hugely economically significant for Ireland. But the people who are not saying this are the people who ostensibly are the most serious about Irish unity. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to think about it, it seems. And one of the really tricky areas here, it's easy to for Ireland right now to invest more in its defence forces. And it's doing that to a modest extent. It's saying that they will build them up a bit more than they are right now. The really difficult thing here is what Professor O'Leary suggests, and that's strategically preparing for with 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 a clear-eyed, um, clear-sighted view of what might happen here, preparing for loyalist violence in the event of Irish unification. And he says that involves, for instance, getting good intelligence on loyalist paramilitarism. Now. Once you get into that world, this is incredibly controversial. Think about what happened during the Troubles. The British had very good intelligence on loyalism. They also, we now know, had very good intelligence on Irish republicanism within the IRA and other republican outfits. And that led to enormous moral and um, practical difficulties in terms of how you deal with that. When you have some something very well infiltrated, you potentially become implicated in what it does because people say you could have stopped this and you didn't. But of course, if you stop everything, you no longer have your intelligence agents within those organisations. If, for instance, there is a belief that springs up that the Irish government, the Irish military forces, the Irish police have agents inside loyalist organisations, it's very easy to see how those organisations start to fragment. People start to point fingers at each other um, and you actually get a dangerous splintering. And it's also very easy to see how Ireland gets sucked into um, something that it doesn't want to be part of. It doesn't presumably want to be part of anything like the decision making of those organisations. But if it becomes aware of what's happening, suddenly it finds itself in the position that Britain was in during the Troubles. It's interesting to look at the Republican point of view and I was, you know, I was looking out for press statements and commentary around the whole issue of the RAF. I mean, it is a fact that the Republic of Ireland has no primary military grade radar. So if someone doesn't want to be seen, they won't be seen. 
It is also a fact that the Republic of Ireland has no real surface to our missile capacity. The surface to our missile capacity, and we've been researching this in recent times, is a shoulder-held uh, weapon with, with a very short range. Certainly no capacity to take down a jet. And Ireland has no fighter jets or interceptors or anything of that matter. So we understand uh, that the RAF, that there has been some sort of secret arrangement and deal that the RAF um, are responsible for Ireland's skies. I find it incredible. It's utterly astonishing, isn't it, when you think about it, that the only way for Ireland to know what's in its skies is if the aircraft turns on a transponder and says, oh, here I am. Now, obviously, if it's a threat, they're not going to do that. It's utterly astonishing. But yet people who are very passionate about Ireland's self-determination seem to have nothing to say about this. You, You know, are you really an independent country if you're not military independent, if you're depending on your neighbour and they over, they, they, you know, I mean, they don't have an automatic right to overfly the skies. But if, if you are depending on the military capacity of, of your neighbour, I mean, how independent are you? Well, I think that if you're if you're looking at this, if there's any sort of strategy involved in how Sinn Féin, for instance, has responded to this issue of RAF overflights recently, where they've been incredibly restrained, there's been almost no criticism whatsoever. Any criticism has been, it seems, of the Irish government for not being more open about this, not of the fact that the RAF are flying in and out as and when they want. Um, if they were if they were flying across Irish airspace and they hadn't sought permission from the Irish government or the Irish military, they wouldn't know that. They were there because if they turn off their transponders, Ireland doesn't know what's up there. If there is any strategy to how, how, how Sinn Féin has responded to that, it potentially is in the view that should Irish unity come about, the RAF will help to secure Irish airspace against, for instance, any loyalists that wanted to bring in guns that way or wanted to use drones to attack um, any any southern infrastructure or whatever it might be that was of an aerial um, threat um, and that the Royal Navy would secure the coastline. Now, that might be a practical and pragmatic way to look at this, but it's a pretty embarrassing situation, I think, from the perspective of Sinn Féin ideologically, that they are referring, that they are, that they are relying on their foe effectively, um, on, on the aspect of their foe that they have most demonised, the British security services, to defend Ireland in the event of Irish unification. And how can they be sure that that would actually happen? How can they be certain of that? But I think the really interesting thing here is that if you take the approach of, for instance, Professor O'Leary, and you say, right, this is serious, we need to massively increase by billions every year our infrastructure in a, in a security, in a military sense, What does that mean for Ireland? Well, it means that money that otherwise would be going on roads, would be going on hospitals, would be going on schools, might be building social housing, is going into this thing that might never be needed, might not be needed at least for many decades. And right now, to many people in the South, doesn't seem like it has much practical implications for their lives. They don't see a threat. They don't think that Ireland is in any way endangered from from Russia, from China, from any of the big adversaries that in Britain they might feel some sense of threat from. And so therefore, this is politically quite a tricky thing to pull off if it is pulled off. I think it's it's worth pointing out that countries in Europe with a similar uh, economic strength uh, to the Republic of Ireland and similar populations uh, and, and perhaps much lower economic strength, they actually do have things like fighter planes and tanks and militaries. And I'm thinking of Portugal, obviously Finland, uh, Norway is not in the European Union, but that's that's a case in point. But even countries like Belgium um, 
and countries like the Netherlands and in fact Luxembourg and Malta spend a much, much more of their GDP on defence than the Republic of Ireland. If you look at the Eurostat statistics on defence spending, Ireland in, in real terms spends practically nothing. And that's been very attractive for Ireland because if you don't have to spend this money on something that all your competitor nations have to spend it on, well, you've got that money for all these other things. So that that has been not some um, not something that Ireland has by mistake stumbled into. I think it's been quite a strategic thing. But the real difficulty here is that if this if if Ireland in a modern world is um, is a major source of American investment, particularly tech investment, if undersea cables, if if electronic infrastructure are now the new front in global warfare as they are in Ukraine, as they might be in a future war in Taiwan, what does that mean for Ireland? Is Ireland now the soft underbelly to getting at America? If you don't want to attack America on American soil, but big companies like Google, like Microsoft are openly supporting Ukraine in its war, is Ireland now the quite dangerous route into attacking America? Well, the government of the Republic of Ireland clearly politically support uh, Ukraine. They say that it's, the neutrality is, is a military concern. It is not a political concern. Now, that's a slight change in terms of rhetoric. Um, but of course, let's be honest, many people, particularly on the political left, value Ireland's neutrality. And I think when we speak about neutrality, that could be valued really quite extensively in in Ireland's life, in Ireland's political life. And I think that that's a very important thing to understand because the, the military capability, neutrality, and maybe the big N question, the NATO question, this maybe gets mixed up in, in, in people's heads. But what what some would say is that Ireland has no need for any military capability, that neutrality would protect Ireland. And certainly they would oppose any additional po- uh, spending because they would say, well, you know, where you're going to end up is, is is NATO membership and why would we give money away to the capitalist military structure anyway? And if you have been a neutral nation for more than a century, as Ireland has been, it's very deep in the psyche. This this is not simply about the far left in Ireland, which does have a particular animus towards NATO, which doesn't like America. That, that, that's not what the typical Irish citizen thinks. They do look favourable on America they've got they've got their own special relationship through through kin through um through US presidents flying in and out and having their um their their ancestral home places in Ireland um, and that doesn't mean they agree with every no, every part of American but it doesn't foreign mean that policy they, or anything. But it doesn't mean that they hate America in the way that people on the far left hate America and see themselves much more as a as a as a on the on the anti NATO side of things. But already, forget NATO. Already, Ireland is participating in what is being by some people described as an a, a EU emerging army. It's not described formally as that yet. This PESCO situation, where Ireland is being um, on is is for now in the fringes of that, but is on a path. To towards greater integration there. Sinn Féin in the past was very critical of that. Recently, there have been briefings that suggest that actually Sinn Féin are rowing back on that. And as they sniff the chance of getting into power in Dublin, they are reassessing their stance on this. They're becoming more pragmatic. And so just as they've gone to the coronation, just as they have in in many instances in Northern Ireland made huge changes on past policies, I think we're going to see that in the South. And the interesting question, I think, is are they doing that simply because of their view of Ireland's need to be close to America, that 
that having America as a close ally is important if you're going to be moving towards Irish unity? Or is this more strategic? Are they starting to think about actually Ireland participating in these bigger military structures, being part of that, being trained with, with, more, with more significant military forces, more sophisticated military forces, that that actually is a strategic imperative if they're going to move towards a united Ireland? And certainly Sinn Féin's critics on the left seem to be, you know, put out various statements accusing Sinn Féin of moving into the the, the mainstream and certainly uh, perhaps not envisaging uh, an, an Ireland completely uh, independent of the wider Western world as some people do. But can I ask you a question? Perhaps it's the final question. You know, obviously, despite the traditions of Irish people in the British Army, whether people like that or not, that is that is a fact and that remains a fact in the army of the United States of America. And that's an historical fact going way, way back. And before that, in the many armies of Europe, basically them all, the Irish Defence Forces are not part of the national psyche and identity of life in the Republic of Ireland. This is a fringe issue. Is that a factor that you have to take into account when we're discussing this? Looking in from the outside... Well, I think that if you if you go back in history, sometimes people aren't necessarily aware of why they think what they think. But if you go back in history, Ireland obviously emerged as an independent state out of a very bloody civil war, a fractious, um, a, a, a brutal family-on-family um, family civil war. And the forces of the state were the forces of one side in that civil war. And so for many years, there was a sense that, that for some people, they were not their army. Obviously, then more recently in the Troubles, the IRA um, were on one side and the state forces were trying to stop them on the other side. But on the on the on the question of Irish men and Irish women now in the British Army, I remember being in Afghanistan more than a decade ago with the Royal Irish Regiment when they were out there as part of the uh, as part of the international coalition and um, fighting the Taliban, etc. And I was really surprised by how many Southern Irish accents there were all around me. It wasn't 40%, I forget exactly what it was, but it was significant. And when you talk to those men, and I think they were all men at that point, they talked about, in some cases, their family having a long history of having fought for Britain, going way back um, for generations. In other instances, they had been in the Irish Defence Forces, they'd been bored, they'd been unimpressed, and they joined the British forces for a sense of action, a sense of adventure, that classic sense of joining the army to see the world that goes back for centuries. Um, and that that tradition is very unusual. Um, do some of those people start to come back? Do they actually use the expertise that they built up in the likes of the Royal Irish Regiment, the Irish Guards, other British military units? Do they use that in the Republic? And do they ultimately one day use that to secure a united Ireland against loyalism in the North? Sam, there's plenty of food for thought in what you've said, and I'm sure many people will disagree with you vehemently, but other people perhaps will have... Well, points that they'll have to address. So once again, Sam McBride, Northern Ireland Editor of the Belfast Telegraph. Thank you very much. Thank you. This episode of The Bell Tale was produced by myself, Kieran Dunbar. The clips were from Virgin Media, UTV, RTE and Sky. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. 
the social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike, preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.